Welcome to the Doctoral Mentoring Masterclass for faculty sponsored by Walden University's Office of Research and Doctoral Services. I'm Lee Stallander, the Associate Director of Faculty Research Training at Walden. If you're a Walden faculty member and would like credit for listening to this Masterclass podcast, please make a note of the code that will be given during the session and email it to me. I hope you enjoy the masterclass. Well, hello and welcome. This is Lita Downs from the Office of Teaching and Learning Excellence, and I would like to welcome you to Walden University's first doctoral mentoring masterclass for faculty who mentor professional doctorate projects. The masterclasses are designed to allow faculty who have been identified as exceptional mentors to share their experiences and insights with the mentoring community. Today's session will be knowing, understanding, and mentoring online professional doctoral students for success. The purpose of this class is to have professional doctoral mentors better understand their students so they can provide a more personalized mentoring experience and build community for their students. The goal for the session is to provide a list of usable strategies for mentors to get to know their students and to understand the basics of mentoring. Our moderator today is Dr. Lee Statlander. Many of you are familiar with her. And at this point, I'm going to turn things over to Dr. Statlander. Welcome. Great to have you on the line today. Thank you, Lita. Always good to hear your voice. Um, we do have a panel today of exceptional mentors, but we're also going to start with Laura Lynn. Would you like to introduce yourself? Yes. Hi, everyone. I'm Laura Lynn, uh, Dean of the Office of Research and Doctoral services and we're happy to bring this session to you today if you can remember a while back and we have recorded we had the uh, more general session and now is where things are evolving with our professional doctorate programs and many of you have been working in your own uh, specific ways to support the needs of our professional doctorate students we really thought this was the time um, you know currently many of our professional doctorate programs have alternative capstones and alternative pathways and our and our students are looking to to do very applied work with an organization. So their capstones really need to translate to the needs of an organization. But with innovations and strategies underway, we're gonna see even more differences in the future in the types of capstones as programs work to continue to innovate in terms of what's appropriate for the field based on evidence, based on what we're hearing from employers. So it's good to have that sort of special consideration. Also, we know that some of you may be new to Walden or some of you may be uh, teaching in both programs, both in the PhD and professional doctorate. Also, some of you have PhD backgrounds, some of you have professional doctorate backgrounds. So we thought it'd be great to have this community conversation and have our esteemed panelists share with you their experiences of how they have been uh, supporting students and some of their strategies. So thank you, Lee, and thank you to, the, to this great panel. Awesome. Miriam, could you introduce yourself? Yes, I'm Miriam Raw. <coughs> Excuse me. I'm Miriam Ross, and I've taught um, <clears throat> in the DH program probably for about seven years, working with students as their mentor. Um, I have about 13 students right now and had four obtain their doctorate last term. So that was very exciting. And I'm looking forward to sharing information with everyone today. I have my background uh, DHA, um, which I obtained online and thoroughly enjoyed and 
feel that it's um, very possible to have a very enriched experience uh, for students online. So thank you. And Gwen? I am Gwen Dooley. I come out of the College of Management and Technology in the Doctoral Business Administration program. I have been working with Walden for over 10 years, and I teach in the program of DBA as well as mentor doctoral students. And Mike? Uh, my name is Mike Furukawa. I'm a senior contributing faculty in health services and healthcare administration. been at Walden about 10 years, and I do both the PhD in health services and the DHA, Doctor of Health Administration. Very good. So this is the first master class in a series that we're going to be holding over the next year on professional doctorates. So let's kind of begin with the basics. How do you see being an online doctoral mentor for the professional doctoral students as different from being an in-person one? Well, what I find because I obtained mine online as well, but of course attended regular courses for other programs, is that I found everything very accessible. So if I were to have a choice, I would actually choose online because I felt like the ability to get close to my chair was accentuated by being able to be online. I know others may see this, may not understand this unless they've obtained a degree online, but I found it um, very positive. I can speak to this. I, I, I did my PhD at a brick and mortar institution and I teach online. So I think the biggest difference is presence. It, in an, in, an in person, you can stop by someone's office or you can see them in the hallway and have a side conversation. You also feel more connected to the faculty and other students because you physically see them. So I think it's important to be available, let people know you can reach out, that they can reach out to you via email or phone at any time. So they do feel connected and then using the shell course also to have some sense of community. So they know other students are there and they feel connected and they have a chance to um, communicate if, if needed. Great point. For me, I see it as similar now since the technology can be used to form personable relationships at a distance. Um, without technology, it would be different because as Dr. Mike has shared, there, there's the opportunity to form relationship in person. But with technology now, we have the opportunity to build those kinds of communities where students are engaging with each other rather than being by themselves. Mm -hmm. So how do you see a professional doctorate student as different from a PhD one? Or do you see them as different? I don't see them as different. I see them as the same because they all have the same goal as to earning the doctorate. I think having them understand that it's the same type of education and that is not different than a, a brick and mortar institution, because in my opinion, the online doctorate, they have to engage a little bit more 
because they're not dependent on the faculty to give them the information. They have to learn it for themselves through books. Now they do receive guidance because the faculty is present in the classroom, but I don't see a difference in them because they are all on that same journey. One has more access to information from an individual and the other is more facilitation where they are learning as well as engaging with the faculty, but they're not solely dependent on lectures and readings that the faculty may stress importance. They have to go out and explore and learn um, and then bring that conversation to the classroom to share their individual perspective of how they have gained insight through the literature that they have read. Yeah, I, I would agree with what Gwen has said. And um, also, because I teach in healthcare uh, with the DHA, I know that for the PhD, it's, it's a different focus because they gather primary. For my students in healthcare, many of them are very high professionals in their program. And being able to choose a topic that makes a difference to their organization is um, probably different than the PhD student, but not always. So being able to evaluate programs with before and after, many students I have found are able to contribute to their organization in that way. So there's there's probably a lot of similarities, although the program is set up differently and DHA in the future will be also changing some of the ways they do things by having integrative, more practice oriented um, dissertations. So that's important too. So there are differences and similarities, yes. I'd add, so the, I think the rigor is, is the same, the doctoral level coursework and critical thinking. I think the application is different. So I think the PhD degree is more of a research degree. So you can actually do your own studies. I think the professional doctorate is to apply that research to an organization and to maybe take a leadership role in, in, um, in using that, those research skills in the organization. Laura, you're muted. All right. As a follow-on question, I'm wondering, this is great information. So thinking about it from the you as mentor point of view, do you find that you sometimes need to play a role with your professional doctorate students to make sure that their work is appropriately applied to an organization, that the kind of guiding them towards that impact? I, I'm is that part of, of what you do? Especially in healthcare, and I'm sure Mike has seen this, when they start, they kind of want it they're often drawn to the community. So they often almost have a public health emphasis. So guiding them in the very, very beginning uh, to see that it's healthcare administration and reiterating that and reiterating that it's, it's a different focus. And sometimes it takes them a little while to kind of change their thinking about Oh, but I wanted to save the world and my community. And it's it's you're really, really working with them to help them change to administration. And and so that's what I find in the very that's beginning. Right. Once they make that change, they're on go. But many have to um, work at that. In the initial conversations that I have with my students, the conversation stem 
around where they work and how they see their research being applicable to their environment. One of the things that I try to guard against are passion topics because they tend to be more biased. And so in the initial conversations, it is to find one topic that they can research without being biased in that area, but it has to be aligned with the business environment because the DBA program is an applied um, research capstone. And so we want to make sure that the strategies that they collect from successful leaders would be applicable and transferable um, to all organizations around that topic. I think this relates to the social problem versus the research problem. Mm. And, and the research problem needs to be operationally focused in the in the healthcare administration space. So it has to be something a health services organization has some control over. So as Miriam mentioned, a lot of the health topics where they want to address diabetes and so forth are, are related, but they're not appropriate for um, an operationally focused uh, research problem. How would you characterize the students that you see in your particular program? And are they professionals? What, how would you say that these students are? For me, the students that I coach, they are professionals. Mm -hmm. There are some in retirement and they're looking for a second life. And so they are transitioning in that way. But most of the students that I coach are professionals. I find that there's a range in the healthcare. Um, I would say 75% are professionals, have very impressive um, credentials regarding their uh, backgrounds. Others have kind of gone from MHA directly into DHA, you would think since they've been students that they would be stronger, but they're really not. They require a little more hand-holding in the beginning because they don't have the broad experience. So I would say about 25% have been students and are just starting in healthcare. The others are seasoned professionals. I think this relates to the goals for them getting the doctorate. Some of my students want to be an executive, so they, they maybe they're a director of nursing and they want to move into the C-suite. Other students have a personal goal of, of getting a doctorate. They're motivated by education, want to serve as a role model for their children and grandchildren. So they're, but they also have experience and, it, and that experience is quite useful um, when, they, when they approach the, um, the, the, the doctorate. But the, but the, but the motivation, is different. It sounds like, you know, uh, based on the what you're all sharing, it sounds like you all spend some time getting to know your mentees from the start. Is that correct? Like you, you spend time and you, you get a sense of where they're at and, and how, and it sounds, it, it sounds like there's like ways that you, you are flexible and you adapt to, like you say, someone pursuing, you know, on the executive path versus someone that's just been kind of going through school and, and they're open. Um, so I don't know if you want to say more about that, but that I think is an exciting theme or tip that you're sharing. 
One, one, one of my titles that I give my team is I'm your faculty partner and I invest in them so that they are successful. They need to feel like I am with them. And mm-hmm. so I'll say that I am the team leader or the faculty partner. Um, for my group, we are called the team, Team Dooley. And mm-hmm. so there are members of the team and there are seasoned team members and there are new members and the seasoned team members latch on to the new members so that they also have that kind of support. So in the initial conversation, that is my, my strategy to help them see that it's not just you, it's you and myself, as well as your team members. So they're not operating in an island by themselves unless they choose to do that. Yeah, during the first week or two, I try to have one-on-one with all of my students and help them set goals for the term. But more than that, I try to help them envision um, success. And I think we do that by our optimism and the way that we can help them see that because they're overwhelmed when they start and they see this long road that they think they'll perhaps never finish. And so I really try to help them envision how that road's going to go, how they're going to achieve success. And I find, I agree with Gwen that they need to see me as a partner. Sometimes when I have that first conversation, they're kind of like nervous. Oh, is she going to be, how am I going to get along with her? What's it going to be? And so I really work with them. You know, I'm here for you. Send me a text, send me an email. We're going to meet frequently. And I am here with you, with you to help you achieve that success. And it's really very enriching both for them and for me because you get to know different aspects of their background, where they're going, what they're doing. And it's not like intrusive. It's like what they want to share, how they see themselves getting to the end point. So it's, you know, I find just like the others, Mike and Gwen have said that as time goes on, they become completely comfortable in how they approach our team going forward, helping them achieve success. So I think a lot of it starts at the beginning and just grows throughout. And those students that are independent, already at an upper level, have great writing and critical thinking abilities, don't need to talk as often once their prospectus is done, but I'm there for them and we still meet regularly. So it's a wonderful process. Yeah, I love I love Gwen's uh, team uh, approach. I I like to think of myself as a coach, so I think it's I think setting the role is important, and then having a relationship a relationship of trust, and then also motivation. Mm-hmm. So um, you know, a lot of students come into it, and the, the the professor or the faculty are sort of up on a pedestal, like they they have a doctorate and they're where I want to be. But I try to break that down and try to make it. Like we are working together on this on this research project, mm-hmm. and that you know I'm I'm here to support you. You're the one that's going to have to make the plays and do the work, okay. and that, that's very important. So they don't they don't look to me to to do everything or to 
to tell them everything that needs to be done. So that as a coach, you're there to support, you're there to motivate and so forth. Mm -hmm. Gwen, did you want to say something? You're... Oh, I was agreeing. Oh. <laughs> All right. So we've talked about how you work with your students, like on a regular basis. Do you do anything in particular when you first onboard students? So you have been assigned to work with a student. How do you deal with that? Do you meet with them? For me, um, I have this one question. We have Thursday Zoom meetings, and that's when everybody comes together in the community and they meet with me. And when there are new members joining, I ask this question. You tell the new students all about me and don't sing the violin. You tell the good and the bad. And so it's amazing. There will be the majority of them that was do the violin one, but there's always going to be one or two say now that all of that is over. Let me tell you, she will tell you this, do what she says, <laughs> and they share all the negative. And, and so that kind of let them see how their team members view me, how they respect me, but yet says that um, I give that tough love when it's needed. And when I'm at that point, you really need to sit down and listen and follow the direction. So th that's how I onboard my new members is always on the Thursday. They will have their peers there and they will share all about me. And I get to listen and watch. I mean, I think that also shows your openness. Yeah. You're willing to hear maybe a negative about yourself and that, you know, you don't expect them to just be loving you all the time, you know? Yeah. And I want them to have that truth because... Yes. They will know what to expect. And, and of course, there, there will be sidebar meetings without me. And they will probably get the real truth at that time. But in the present, yeah. they get to yeah. be open and honest with their new members. Nice. What a great example of really setting a, a culture with mm -hmm. your team of students and setting up that real trust uh, relationship and camaraderie. That's a that's a fantastic example. It is. Miriam, how do you go about this? I I tend right now to to do it one on one, and I let them know, as I think I've mentioned, that they can text me anytime, ask me any question, email me. I leave it, and then of course we talk one on one via phone conference. So I do try to set it up that our relationship is there, and over time it it becomes different. They become more independent. They learn critical thinking skills. So they already have them, but this is a different thing. I mean, it's, it's a mindset that they have to grow into doing this because their mindset prior to this is I'm doing a paper, I'm doing a paper. And 
they have to learn the rigor of the entire process. And it's that rigor that can throw them in the beginning. And over time that changes and they know that I'm there. Um, as Mike has said, and Gwen has said, as both their mentor and their coach and their, you know, collegial person that will help them achieve success. But I have to say, I love Gwen's idea of a group Zoom. And we as faculty have to be open to new things. And I'm going to try to do something like that because I do see the benefit. Although they can talk in the discussion area, as time goes on, they tend not to do that. They do that the first few weeks and then that's gone. So having that rapport in a group, I think will be very beneficial to them. Um, and so uh, because many of them know each other from other classes, but it's not a cohort thing that goes through the system. So I do think having that kind of group engagement will be very reassuring and will keep them in the program better. So. Thank you, Gwen. Mike, how about you? I'm, I'm, I, I love the idea of the group. I, I, I'm a very individual person, so I, I, I try to make myself available and tailor what my style is to the particular person. So some, some students I meet with on a weekly basis. Other students, I give them a lot of direction at the beginning of the term, and we make it clear what we want, and then I don't hear from them as much. But it, it really depends on the expectation. So I try to set very clear expectations of how I will operate. So, and boundaries is also very important. So when students come into the um, doctoral program, some need a lot of handholding and they have certain expectations about feedback and writing a paper and all that. So we've got to iron all that out about what the doctoral process looks like and what the, what deliverables look like rather than uh, paper. So I try to lay all that out at the beginning, try to set expectations on what will be required and how I will work with them so that there's not a lot of um, mystery or, you know, feelings like they're not getting feedback and so forth. Just try to make it, make sure they know I'm available, but also that it's really up to them. We've had a couple questions. Jim Reynolds, would you unmute or Lita, can you help him do that? He has a question about how do you avoid triangulating the mentee when committee members have a significant difference? Can you talk a little bit about what you mean by the triangulating? Yes, uh, can I be heard? It is, you can. Uh, oh, great, okay. Uh, yeah, I just wondered, uh, it seems like there's, there is a, a culture uh, in different schools of, uh, dissertation committees and in some, for example, some schools, there's a, uh, a headmaster, a chairperson who has uh, absolute last say. And then there's others that are, uh, that are probably more uh, democratic or that uh, committee members can comfortably uh, process differences of opinion and differences of perspective. Sometimes I fear that the, the mentee, the student, it gets caught between uh, gets caught in the middle of conflict between uh, faculty committee members, and I just am wondering what kind of um, what kind of uh, culture that you try to develop is is the ultimate responsibility of the chairperson, and uh, and and that person has the last word, or or do you uh, elevate it to a higher level of administration 
if the conflict cannot be resolved internally. Thank, I'll stop now. Thank you. <laughs> I'll jump in and let the, the panel kind of speak to what they do. But I think in the ideal, regardless of whether it's, you know, professional doctorate or elsewhere, or, you know, as there are different committee structures and approaches that, that may come and evolve, the idea is that the, the committee members in the ideal, I think, would get together, manage expectations together, because sometimes it is there's someone new, they have a different idea, because it's just it, as much as it, it could be a methodological difference, or it could be just in a, a way you work with students different. And you don't want to have that con confusion or disconnect. It can be such a demotivating moment for a student. And you, you as a, you know, as the other committee member or the chair may have been laying the groundwork. So getting together with the committee member in some kind of focused time and managing those expectations seems to be a helpful approach. But I'm just, I'll throw it out to the, the, the folks and, and what they do when they're, they're working on uh, professional doc committees. If I may uh, respond, what I tend to do is go through the feedback and I look for what makes sense as it relates to the rubric and what is the personal preference. And then once I determine what makes sense for the rubric, I will write a note to the student and say, do this. Now, if it's a personal preference and it does not make sense to me, I will say disregard, but I will have back conversations with that SEM indicating what is the purpose of this? Why do you see this as relevant? And if it still doesn't make sense and we can't come to an agreement, then I will bring in my supervisor and have her thoughts come in so that we will come together as one voice. And that's something that the, the DBA program focus on. The, the committees have to have one voice and the voice comes from the chair. But I do try to engage the SCM or the URR to understand why they're saying that. And if it does not make sense, and we can't come to an agreement, then we, we will bring in our supervisors. Does that happen very often? No, it does not. Because as professionals, we can come to an agreement. But if it's something that's totally um, out of the norm, I will bring in my supervisor and have a conversation with her. And I will do exactly what she says, because sometimes I can be too close. And if it makes sense, she can tell me that and then I can make the adjustment. But I always try to work with that SEM without bringing in the supervisor. But if it has to be escalated, I can call her and say I need to talk and she will give me her her voice and then I will be able to make that adjustment. Yeah, I tend to do what Gwen has done. I also take a two-prong approach in that I say to the student right from the beginning, your committee member is going to have a voice and a strong voice. So keep that in mind that when you first submit, chances are that their opinions will add to what you're saying. And so be prepared to see that and not see it as, oh my goodness, because I found this when I first started. They didn't like it. I can't go on. I, I'm too, I'm paralyzed. Because that can happen to students that they think it's really great. They hand it in and then the committee member has feedback. Mm 
And so I try to prepare them that this feedback will make it stronger. And what you must do is make the corrections ASAP, hand it back in. Because I try to tell them, if you don't, if you wait months, they're going to forget what they said and they're going to come up with other things. So it <laughs> helps you to go ahead, make those corrections right away, hand it back in right away, see them as a part of your team. Now, what I also try to do with the committee member, um, and everybody has a different view of this, I try to make them feel a part of the team as soon as the first prospectus is handed in. I send them an email. I try to build a relationship and many I have a great relationship with. So if I'm the committee member and they're the chair, we know that we have this rapport with each other that will continue with their student and with my student. So some committee members don't respond. I, I'm not sure why. They kind of see themselves as separate, but I try to continually break through that so that we feel as free to communicate with each other as we do with the students. So I want them to feel like it's a real team, not just they're out there. So that's kind of my goal in working with committee members. And if problems develop, I don't hesitate to go to um, administrative people in charge. And that's always helpful. Yeah, I, I would add, I think some a lot of these differences come from misunderstanding, on sometimes on both sides. So the student feels like the URR is out to get them and they're just trying to give them a hard time. When in fact, they, they're trying to offer comments that can make the study better mm -hmm. or they don't quite understand what's written. So maybe the writing needs to be more detailed or more clear. And then even on the other side, maybe the committee member doesn't quite understand what the, what the study's about. Maybe they're coming at it from a particular view. And again, it gets down to the writing Maybe the writing isn't as detailed. So the I've worked with a student. I, I know what's been communicated verbally, but it's not as detailed as it needs to be in the proposal. So that's where I, I would, um, if, if, it, if we still have difficulties, several rounds of iteration, I would meet separately with the committee member. Even the URR, I would reach out to them and say, okay, I hear you have concerns. Mm -hmm. Can we talk about them? I want to make sure I understand what your concerns are. And then I will do my best to translate those back to the student, which I think helps to break through. And sometimes it's just misunderstanding. Like, oh, I totally agree with the study. I have no issue with that. And then just, and then move, we can move forward. Laura, any thoughts on all, all of this? Oh, I think that all sounds really good. And it sounds like that, that collegial coming together, that's the first place set, you know, creating the, the, the shared understanding, doing things in the most collegial way, and always thinking about the student experience. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that can be, you know, that's where I, we've seen the most misses happen is when someone just is sending a different opinion and there's a disagreement. The student does have, like you're saying, sharing it, feels stuck in the middle, feels demotivated. But if the committee can work together, you know, and, and understand there are pathways and there are, there is support, you know, there's support within the programs, there's support within the Office of Research and Doctoral Services, there's method, you know, methodology advisors, um, and, and folks that are willing to, to support you um, uh, 
as you're working through the these committee issues. But I think at the end of the day is um, online, we, we do just, I think, need to be a little more uh, proactive in, in having those types of meetings and connections with fellow committee members. And I, when you were mentioning that, many times I'll say to a student, look, um, to break through this, set up a meeting with the committee member. Because sometimes I think that one-on-one -on -one with the committee member, with just the two of them, helps the committee member feel more connected to the student mm -hmm. and helps resolve some of the issues that are standing in the way. I have found that that can be a big help when the committee member is just seeing it totally different and can't mm -hmm you know, see the big picture. So I'll encourage the student to do that. And it, it can be a big help. I'll have the student come back and say, oh, that was great. And the more I can help the committee member feel connected to the student, the better it is all the way through. So I try to make that a goal um, as soon as the student submits their first um, assignment with their prospectus to try to get all that connected because in the end, it will help me, the student and the program. That's a great example, Miriam. And it's reminding me of another important thing that I think, you know, you, you all might've faced on the panel and those in the audience too, from time to time, is there for something happens and there's a committee change. So you're the chair and then a, a new uh, second member is coming on. Well, it's really important, I think, to share that student's background, history, and experience because someone might look at something with fresh eyes and say, I, I'm seeing a different methodology. I'm seeing a different thing. You know, we want to do what's right and, and support the student, but just for that continuum of experience that they understand the student's journey. And then, like you're saying, Miriam, making sure they can make that connection with that. Yeah. Great. Um, can't comment. Gary Griffith, that they like to share sections one, two, and three with the second committee member prior to the whole study being submitted to task stream. I often do that myself. Do you do that? Do you share like by email the proposal before it goes to task stream? I do not. Okay. I do I not. They get the whole shebang. <laughs> you know, they're they're looking at the prospectus, which is, you know, small. And I expect the committee member to have feedback because the prospectus is very, we, they don't know what we've gone through to get that. It's different when they get to the proposal, but that prospectus is a little bit tedious and students feel overwhelmed. So I look to, I try to get it as good as it can be, but I try, I, I know that the committee member is really going to add to it. And that's a huge help to the student because they're thinking, gosh, she's making me do all this stuff. When will it end? And then having the committee member reiterate and add to it is a huge help. So I, now, you know, that, that goes well. Now, what I will do if, if I'm in the capacity of a second committee member or URR, especially a URR, I will re uh, reach out to the chair and say, let's have a conversation because nine times out of 10, there is a lack of understanding of the data analysis um, section. 
and there are specific things that needs to be in place for that section. And if it's the second iteration or the third iteration, I know that we need to have a conversation. And so I will reach out and I will work through email if it can be corrected and get back to me within that review timeframe, then we can work together on that. But what I try to do in the initial run, let's get the whole perspective, let's see what they say. And I'm not going to send the document unless it's ready to go. So um, when I get feedback, it will probably be something that I just did not see clearly. But mm -hmm. I try to help my committee members by presenting them the best document. And if it's going to come back with anything, it will not be structural. It will be editorial. And, and that's right. where the preferences you know, do we really need to go through this or can we push this through based on whatever we need to um, more align to the rubric? Right. And what I'd like to, I love these examples and very specific in terms of different committees and roles and, and how to work. And, you know, for the audience, thinking also for, for listeners of the future, we are working on um, ensuring, you know, streamlining the committee process, things may be much more tailored within professional doctorate programs, but the things that you're saying apply to whoever is supporting the student, regardless of their title, their role, that working in that way of um, really, you know, uh, thinking, thinking of the student's experience and working collegially and communicating effectively, I think is, is a common theme. And so, um, as we think of the future with professional doctorates and, and some very alternative, uh, I know there, there are some programs that have some very alternative, unique and innovative proposals coming through and different processes that might support that. All the things you're saying, I think, apply exactly in terms of how uh, committee members and, and team members supporting students uh, you know, should work with them. The code for this podcast is 7423. One of the things I like to add is I really like task stream because the documents are housed there and you can always go back to that. And then there's it starts the clock for the review time. Email is a little tricky because people may misplace the email. And so you can you can I, I like to use that because there's official record of the communication. And then there's the preliminary review and then there's the rubric review, which is also very helpful. Well, yeah, I find if a student is not a strong writer, uh, even though I try to get it, like Gwen said, as good as it can be, I have them do preliminary. If I feel it's strong, I have them do the full from the beginning. But probably 50% of the time, I say, put it in the preliminary, and I go back to the preliminary, and I go back to the preliminary until I feel it's good enough for a full review for particular students. And it works better. Um, the student is less stressed and, you know, they see it as a process. So, so I agree. I, I find that very valuable. And I think too, because we are, we are always going to be looking at new approaches, new innovations, but the theme of what you're saying, even if we're working with different tools and different processes, is we need that record. We need the time for that early feedback. Um, so we may have, you know, things that are called something else or a different system or a different process. But the bottom line is that, like, like Mike, you're saying we can't go back to things in email or, you know, just having right. that 
And also it provides, you know, the, the programs with important data for tracking. So making sure that however it's working, we have that system and that there is that way, that repository of, of documents. And the other thing that's coming up with professional doctors talking about repository is having something where, you know, your, the products are available to employers. That's something we're looking at and thinking about. So there, there's um, uh, lots of opportunities. And I think, and I, what's so exciting is to hear that all of you using the tools that we have now are really using them to leverage them uh, for the most effective mentoring practices. And that as we hopefully advance in the future, refine, streamline, have more user-friendly, integrated, intuitive approaches, the same, same things apply. How do they leverage? And that's why it's also so important at an organizational level to continue hearing from our, our faculty and make sure that, okay, what's working well? What, what would be great? And so learning from your mentoring experiences, how to, how to further improve things in the future, I think is critical. Um, and yeah, this, these are, are great examples. We are out of time. I do want to thank all of the panelists. You were so wonderful in sharing your experience. Next time, we are going to be looking at mentoring the literature review in July, and I hope you can join us for that. A reminder that we are putting together a doctoral mentoring guidebook, and we would love your tips that you may have for working with your students, and you are welcome to email me those, and that is my email. So thanks, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Lee. Thanks. Bye, thanks everyone. Panelists. Bye. Bye. This podcast was sponsored by Walden University's Office of Research and Doctoral Services. Our music was by Excel Music Publishing, licensed under Creative Commons.